Hi there, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm Christina Lee, Communications Manager at NK News. NK News exists today because of you, our readers and listeners, and your continued passion and interest in what enables us to deliver the best news, data, and analysis about North Korea. In this episode, we wanted to find out more about you, our subscribers, and give you the opportunity to share how you got into this field and your professional or personal interests in North Korea. We hope this will be a semi-regular thing. So if you have a unique North Korea story and would like to be featured on the show, please write to us at podcast.nknews.org. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that NK News is offering a free year subscription every month to one lucky listener who reviews our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So be sure to leave us a review and share the NK News podcast with your friends. And if you're not subscribed already, you can save $50 today using the code podcast at checkout. Just visit www.nknews.org slash sign up for unlimited access to all of our news, analysis, and research on North Korea. This podcast features three short interviews with subscribers from London, Beijing, and Springfield, Missouri. First, we have Ian Bennett, who will tell us about startup and investment culture in North Korea. Then, we take a dive into North Korean music with Pekka Koronen before wrapping things up with Jake Wilburn who runs the DPRK Dispatch blog. Let's jump right in. And joining me by Skype from London, England, is Ian Bennett. Ian has over a decade of experience in software and product development and has visited North Korea several times, both as a tour leader and Chawson Exchange workshop leader. He travels to North Korea a few times a year as an ex- occasional tour guide with Cordial Tours and also helps organize workshops with Chawson Exchange. He recently went to North Korea with Cordial Tours for the Pyongyang Marathon in April and again for a week in May with Chawson Exchange for a Pyongyang workshop. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tell us how you became interested in traveling to North Korea. Well, uh, it was was over a decade ago now, and I was living in Incheon in South Korea, uh, and I became fascinated with that, that place that was so close and that nobody ever talked about. And in those days, it was possible to travel over the border uh, over on the east coast uh, at the to the Gumgang Mountain Resort. That was some of some of the last tours that went over there, um, of course, before the uh, before the unfortunate shooting at that time. So yeah, I was I went over there in February two thousand and eight. I guess my my interest started from there. I, I then returned a few times as a as a tourist with uh, with Corio Tours, um, and then went back. And I guess as my experience with the country grew, went back as a tour guide, and then got involved with Chosun Exchange. Uh, well made contact with them at the end of 2014 and then went on my first workshop leader trip in April 2015. Now, when you go as a tour leader, you have to work with two local guides. Uh, how is that? Is it always smooth sailing or is there ever friction? There, there's occasional friction, of course, but it, it all depends on uh, on the tour group you have. It's more just a case of of, of knowing which, which which battles to fight, really. If, if, there's, a, if there's a no, uh, we can't visit this, uh, Sometimes it is a hard no. Sometimes there's 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 room for negotiations. I think the only time there's ever really been friction is when uh, when tourists decide to to go AWOL. Um, and you know, as, as everyone knows, it's it's mostly uh, most of the responsibility is on uh, most most of the problems will be caused for the for the North Korean guides. Um, less less so for the tourists. What kind of requests do uh, North Korean guides find completely unreasonable and and never say yes to? 
people sometimes want to go off uh, they want to go off jogging on their own uh, they want to you know sneak into this and um, you know run away from the group and those sorts of things and that's known when you go into the country and when the tourists go in we always make sure that we give them comprehensive briefings so that's people just trying to push their luck a little bit uh, is there any value to doing a tour to North Korea more than once I mean there are certain places that people visit on every single trip. So uh, isn't there a certain amount of sameness or uh, being there, done that? Yeah, visiting Manion Day can get a bit old. Uh, but, uh, there, you know, there is there is great value in, in going back a number of times. First of all, because most of the time when people go in, they go in uh, on their first tour and they're mainly focused around Pyongyang, especially if it's a short tour. Uh, they might get down to Panmunjom, but uh, most of the time they're around the Pyongyang area. People who go back for for longer tours, may, you know, maybe get up to Bektu or maybe get into some of the sort of the more recently uncovered uh, further further flung places. I was fortunate enough in 2010 to be on the first uh, Western tour group that visited Hamong, that sort of thing. And there's also Corio and some of the other tour companies will will organize these sort of B-sides and rarities uh, returners tours. So they try to cut out the try to cut out the duplication. So yeah, there is there's a lot more value. And even visiting the same places, you can you can get different nuances from uh, from seeing them at uh, seeing them in different times. What do you think you've seen or realized or experienced on a tour to North Korea that most people don't? The most the most people who visit don't. Yeah. Um well, I suppose it- I guess I, I guess one of the things you notice from repeat trips is that you see uh, the the narrative and how that ebbs and flows, and you can see the some of that, of course, is 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 passed down to the people we work with, and so you can see when you know when hostilities or how the state is feeling towards uh, towards other countries. You know, for example, uh, we've you know in recent tours, you know, we've we've noticed that you know a lot less a lot less U.S. propaganda. And, and things like that. So you notice even in even in the sameness of some of the um, of some of the repeat trips, you notice things that have changed and uh, when they tone up, tone down or tone up the rhetoric. Is there anything uh, like I don't know? Uh, have you ever been to the top of the Ryugyong Hotel uh, or you know done done anything exciting that no one else is ever likely to experience? I haven't, but uh, but Simon Cockerell of Corio Tours has. I think there's actually only a couple of foreigners who've who've been up there. But of course, that's that's all under change at the moment. The with the Ryugyong Hotel with all of the uh, the cladding on the outside and the neon. So um, you know, perhaps more people will be going up there soon. Now you work for uh, Chawson Exchange. Uh, we haven't yet had the chance to interview uh, Jeffrey C or Andre Abrahamian on the podcast, but hope to get. Uh, Andre on soon. Uh, but for our listeners who may not be familiar with Chosen Exchange or its work, could you briefly explain the organization and what it does? Yeah, so Chosen Exchange, broadly speaking, does two things. The The main thing that we're known for is that we take Western business leaders or Western business people to North Korea to run workshops for North Korean entrepreneurs. And we do this a few times a year. The general format of these is that people will approach us and say, I'd like to visit North Korea and to take part in your program. We will find an area of expertise that's, that fits with the general theme of the of the upcoming program so that might be startups or entrepreneurship or that sort of thing people will prepare a presentation we then fit that into the uh, into the the overall structure of the work, workshops and then we run 
run a three-day workshop, normally three to four. Um, it depends how many workshop leaders we have. And we, we run those. We run them in a number of places, actually. They're most frequently either in Pyongyang or in Pyongsong. Uh, we've run them up in Rasson as well and, and Wonsan. Typically, we're in the country for about a week or so. Uh, the difference, or one of the differences with the tour groups is we go in under business visas as well. So we get a little more freedom. Um, one of the things I, you know, particularly, it sounds, sounds, very, uh, sounds very minor, but, you know, just being able to go for a jog along the river on your own in, in Pyongyang without, without any guides around you is, is, is quite unique, that sort of thing. We do a lot more, um, I guess, impromptu stuff in terms of we just kind of pick a restaurant we're going to go to for the evening and wander around with a little more freedom. And we're in the country for about a week, uh, as I say, uh, at a time. We tend to try and fit in some site visits as well there. So we, you know, we'll go to factories and schools and universities and things that might not be on the typical tourist trail. So that's the main thing that we're known for. The second thing that we, uh, second main branch of our work is we take North Koreans out of North Korea to Singapore. Uh, we're a Singapore-based uh, NGO, and we take them there and run these mini MBA programs for them. So they'll be out of the country for three months or so, or you know, it depends. Uh, but uh, and and we run these kind of intensive programs, and then the Koreans go back and. Share their share their knowledge, uh, use the knowledge to start their businesses, and that's yeah, that's the second main. And what's what your major role or function in Chosen Exchange? I help to run the in-country workshops, uh, and um, so I, I took our most recent uh, workshop in May. I also do outreach work, trying to let people know what we're doing. Not the easiest thing to to, to kind of have an elevator pitch for, as as, as my five-minute explanation of what we did just uh, just proved. So I I, I, try, I try and get I try and explain to people what we do. Okay, now you were in Pyongyang in May just last month for a, uh, a workshop, and how was that? Honestly, it was amazing. Uh, we we planned this workshop um, you know, back last year when, frankly, you know things were looking pretty dire. Uh, it was the you know the, the ratcheting up of tensions and missiles going up at all times and so on. And you know, really at that stage, it was touch and go whether we were even going to be able to go in. And then we had this thawing, and um, you know, we saw you know the Panmunjom in April, and you know things were moving very fast. So we were in the country at the time when Pompeii was there mm. and, and and I knew I, I knew that because I had a, a, a cell phone with a data connection our Korean partners didn't know they found out a couple of days later we saw the uh, the Nodong Shin Moon uh, in the in the perspex on the uh, Pyongyang subway so everyone crowded around that with the with the pictures of, of uh, Kim and Pompeo so we were there for that narrowly narr narrowly missed bumping into him at the Koryo Hotel and then of course the first announcement of the Singapore summit and, and again sort of got all of that off the BBC website that wasn't um, quite so quite so uh, reported within uh, within the country but yeah quite quite historic times to be there and what was the uh, the focus of this uh, most recent uh, workshop this was a startup boot camp I mean historically we've had between typically like between about 50 and 90 or 90 to 100 participants we never know till we walk in the room this time there was 130 people signed up so it was it was standing room only yeah it was yeah that was pretty exciting are they from different government organizations or ministries or how does that work they're from they're from a wide variety of um, of organizations I mean we we monitor very closely exactly which ones they come to because we need to remain sanctions compliant uh, 
uh, in, in the first instance. So we get people, we, we, you know, we get academics, we get people from sort of pricing units, then we get people from, you know, some of the conglomerates as well, sort of food conglomerates and that sort of thing. And then we get people who are fresh out of university, uh, people who have, um, you know, maybe want to start their own businesses. And we have actually had a couple of people, you know, we're now starting to get these longitudinal studies over uh, people who've returned um, and seeing how their businesses are progressing. So we've had some people who came along to workshops with us three, four years ago, and now actually helping them and coaching them along as their businesses grow. How would somebody fresh out of a North Korean university know about your program to even apply to take part in it? You could broaden that question to how does anyone know about our program? And, you know, the, the initial suspicion, I suppose, with people is that everyone's handpicked, they're all put there, and it's, you know, it's all sort of high-ranking party cadres. It, it's not. Um, it more works the same way, I suppose, as if there was a seminar going on in, you know, in any other country. We will advertise what our speakers' expertise is, what topics we're going to be talking about. And our partners uh, in the country, they will then go out and reach out to local institutions who, through their contacts, they'll say, look, we got some people coming to talk about startups. Can you give these guys a day off work to come along? That's, that's kind of how it works. How have sanctions affected the work of Chawson Exchange? It is it is difficult. I mean, certainly on the on the financial side of things, you know, because we're all donations, um, you know, we all run off donations. That can be very difficult. I'm sure it sort of puts you know, puts a few workshop leaders off. So you know, on on an intangible level, the the whole situation and sanctions can be a deterrent. It's also, I mean, we we can't always you know, there's certain nationalities we can't bring. We we can't bring Americans. It, it varies by year. It seems seems to you know, ebb and flow a little bit. But uh, it'll, it will depend which you know, which nationalities we can bring, and of course, as I said, which which organisations we can we can work with in the country. Right. And what do you hope for the short to midterm future of North Korea? Well, it would be it would certainly be good to just see the initial conversations, the, the, this initial spirit of talking that we've that we've seen. Of course, it might not be that uh, there was a great deal of detail uh, coming out of the summit, but depending on what Pompeo and his North Korean counterparts, what what kind of more more tangible and detailed arrangements they can come to, hopefully we can start to see things opening up a little bit. I mean, some of our workshop participants, they you know they're they're tangibly frustrated by the inability to you know to form joint ventures to to be able to trade hopefully if, if things start to improve, we'll start seeing more investment in the special economic zones, start seeing more investment in building the infrastructure back up. You know, if, if the time is right to, for foreign, foreign companies to be able to invest in North Korea to help, to help build it back up, you know, it'll always remains to be seen, you know, whether it's two steps forward, three steps back. But yeah, we're, we're hopeful. And where would you like to see North Korea 10, 20 years from now? I don't think anyone really knows. I think too too fast an opening up will not necessarily benefit the everyday North Koreans. But if there's a gradual opening up uh, and they can start to maybe not spend such a portion of their GDP on uh, on the military uh, and start diverting it to um, to normal people, if there is a little bit more freedom for people to to build up and make their companies profitable, then you know there's there's a lot of potential in the country. All right. Well, that's a positive note to, uh, to finish up on. Thank you very much for your time, Ian, and uh, all the best with the uh, future work of Chawson Exchange. Thanks a lot. And right now I'll be talking with 
Pekka Korhonen from uh, Finland, who is now in Beijing, China. Uh, hello, can you hear me? Yes, hello, I can hear you very well. All right, for our listeners, Pekka is a political scientist and avid writer on North Korean music. And right now he's teaching at Renmin University in Beijing. Are you teaching North Korean music there or political science or a bit of both? I'm teaching world politics here, not the music. The music is a kind of hobby for me. Okay, well, um, tell us a bit about your uh, area of political science. What uh, What's your focus? I focus on world politics because I have been a long time in East Asian countries. That is in a kind of center there. And how did you get interested in uh, North Korea? That's the music. Okay, so music for you was the the conduit, the gateway drug, to use the uh, American terminology, uh, for you to become interested in North Korea. Yes. So how did you that happen? To, you used to hear only bad news about North Korea. Hunger and prisons and camps and repression and stupid leaders. But then Murambongbang came along. They were such a, such a news that it broke the normal pattern of North Korean news. And it was very good music. So I start to listen to it. What is it that appeals what, to your uh, music aesthetic from the Moranbong band? I grew up in a pop music environment and they sounded like that. And how would that... I mean, North Korea is very, uh, let's say, nationalistic about its, its uh, uh, cultural uh, production. How do you imagine that, that European pop culture... Uh, Became, came to influence the music of the Moranbong band? North Korean ideology is, of, of course, based on Juche, but yeah. Juche imports a lot from foreign countries. If you read Kim Jong-il's writings, whoever then wrote them, there's always the idea that North Korea is not yet fully developed. It needs to import elements from foreign countries. And that's, all, that's the case also with music. So you've read uh, Kim Jong-il's uh, thesis on music, have you? I have done that, and his writings on cinema and so on. Mm. Okay. Very interesting art series. Could you uh, maybe tell us a few interesting things that you learned from that? There's a the strong inf- emphasis on Koreanness, strong emphasis on emotion. Yeah. It's not the things that happen, not bravery, but the emotion that always comes up in them. Emotion goes directly from one person's heart to another person's heart. And music is another conduit in this also. Music goes directly into the psychology of people. That's the way why music also became professionally interesting to me. Yeah, actually, could you talk a bit about the intersection between propaganda and music? You just mentioned that... uh, Music in North Korea is very much designed to move the listener, to, to, to give an emotion. So talk a bit more about the, the propaganda aspect of music, please. The, all the orchestras, all the bands, they sing about the party, the leaders, the military, the country, the state. There are not many songs that are not along this line. And the melodies tend to be very beautiful. They are very well done pieces of music which you start to appreciate after you get into it. Now, I'm not as familiar with the music of the Moranbong band because uh, my well, my uh, collection of North Korean music is, uh, is a bit older. Uh, I have some old vinyl LPs at home 
of um, the kind of, you would call it a semi-martial music, very much, a, it feels to me like a military influence, lots of military singing and uh, brass bands and that kind of thing. It's a very different style of music. Are you also familiar with that kind of uh, North Korean music and singing? You mean the military bands? Yeah, I, th I guess they're military bands, or at least they sound like military bands. I like the early Murambon band, but the way it was used so, so strictly in propagandistic ways in the later part of the history of the band, it was not so good to me. And the tragic history of the Unasu Orchestra is interesting. I've written one piece with Adam Cascat on it and writing another one. Unasu Orchestra was invented in 2009 by Kim Jong-il. It was composed of very elite and young musicians, planned to be at the world level of, well, world music, highest level. And then it was disbanded in August 2013 with scandals. Something drastic happened. Nobody knows the exact details. The uh, North Korean diplomat who now lives in South Korea, Taeyong Ho, in his book, uh, he talks about the, uh, the Unhasu band, uh, but I haven't yet reached the chapter in which he gives the, uh, the details. So um, I, I will soon find out <laughs> what the, uh, the story is from his perspective. He gave an inter interview to Arirang News last year, also mentioning the band, telling stories. The, the band was living in one high-rise building, all members in the same place. And then in one day, they were all kicked out with their furniture and so on. He also tells many gruesome details. You don't know what is believable and what is not, but at least there was something very drastic in this. There are also rumors about a number of members executed. If you read newspapers for that time, you get very big news, very big executions. Probably the whole number was finally three people. That's a Pyongyang rumor that I have heard. But anyway, one band was really... There was really a clash with Kim Jong-un. Now, we know that sometimes um, there are rumors or reports about people uh, in North Korea being executed, but then later, one year or two years later, they might be seen alive again. Have any of these members of the Unhasu band been seen alive again in public since the rumored uh, breakup yes. of the band? Yes, yes. Many of them have been seen. And they are in good positions in other bands. Chongong band and some Jigeon band, some of them went to South Korea in, in what was it, February? February this year, yes. And we also had yes. the leader, of the, I think the, yeah, the leader of the Moranbong band came down. Uh, uh, her name escapes me at the moment. I think it might be Ms. Hyun Songwal. Well, he, she used to be the leader of the Moranbong band. Ah, she's a former leader. She's, uh, she's addressed as the leader of the Samjion Orchestra. She was a very popular singer in North Korea in late 1990s, early 2000s. And she appears to be a very skillful politician also. Knows how to move among different kinds of people. So you visited uh, North Korea in September 2014. Was that part of your uh, quest to uh, know and understand the music better? It was a part of my quest to know and understand North Korea better. You didn't hear so much when you heard the music. But of course, as a normal tourist, you can't meet anybody. I was living at Beijing at time. And because Beijing is so near, you just take a train and you are in the next morning, Guangdong and then the Sinuji. Now, you also run two blogs uh, related to North Korean music. Could you tell us about them? 
Yeah, I actually have three. When I started to listen to North Korean music via YouTube, and then you look at the discussion place, many people were asking, what does this mean? What are they singing about? Yeah, nobody was answering. I was also interested. So you study the Korean, find out the words, look up a dictionary, and you can see what they are singing about. And because that was interesting, I did it as an evening hobby. Then I simply started to do it more and more. Then I created a blog where I put this information, which was an extremely good idea. Because then people started commenting, correcting my mistakes, finding new information. Okay, so it's a dialogue between you and, and other people about the songs of these three uh, North Korean bands, the Moranbong band, the Eunhasu band and the Samjian band. Yes, and a friend of mine is doing Chongbong band. But yeah, it's the whole world. People comment from Japan, China, Korea, USA, Europe, Russia. Very interesting. Now, a couple of years ago, um, I don't know if you were in Beijing at the time, but uh, a couple of years ago, the uh, Moranbong band was scheduled to play in Beijing, but that didn't happen. Uh, do you yeah, recall? Can you tell a bit about what happened there? What was the reason for that? I think it was in December 2015. North Korean leadership does not seem to be of one mind always. There are different elements doing different things. Kim Jong-il was very skillful and very eager to have cultural diplomacy to foreign countries. And it seems to me that part of the foreign policy establishment wanted to continue this. Moranbon Band, it's a very good product. Also, it provides candistic and cultural diplomacy terms. So they arranged them to perform in Beijing. At the same time, another part of the establishment, Kim Jong-un in Pyongyang, declared that North Korea is now ready to detonate a hydrogen bomb. Hydrogen bomb, yes. Uh. Yes. This happened at the same time, and I think the Chinese leadership did not like the Kim Jong-un's declaration. I've also discussed this with some members of the Chinese Communist Party, and that's what they think also. Okay, so it's politics interfering with music. Yes. Okay, well, Pekka, thank you very much for your time today, for talking to us. Uh, we will put the links to your three blogs on the uh, the website when this podcast goes up so that other listeners can find your uh, blogs about the Unhasu, Moranbong and Samjion bands and hopefully continue that discussion and uh, ex increase the knowledge of North Korean music. Yes, you can put the link also to Chongbong band. We'll also put the link no to Chongbong band. mind is doing that. Excellent. All right, thank you very much, Pekka, and have a great day. Yes, you too. I am joined via Skype by Jake Wilburn, who is in Springfield, Missouri, or Missouri. How do I... What's the correct pronunciation there, Jake? <laughs> well, it depends on uh, which part of the state. If you're in the, the more rural hillbilly parts, it's Missouri. Uh, but if you're in the three big cities, uh, one of which I'm in Springfield, it's Missouri. Now, is that the same city that The Simpsons is based in? You know, there's a lot of debate about that. But if you ask anybody in this town, they're going to tell you yes. Do you have a nuclear power plant? 
<laughs> we have several power plants, actually. Nothing nuclear, but we do have several power plants, yes. Okay, but the, yeah, the lack of nuclear does make a bit, it's a bit of a, a flaw in the case, I suppose. Sure, sure. Anyway, now you were uh, in the, uh, the U.S. military in a previous life, weren't you? Yeah, uh, it, it has been some time ago, but uh, I was in the military in the 2003-2004 uh, timeframe is, is when I joined. I was in the Navy, and this was during uh, kind of the Iraq War. Right. Had just kicked off right about that time. And so during all that excitement, I was getting ready to graduate high school and mm-hmm. uh, kind of got caught up in, in that as the, as the thing to do. So yeah. when I joined the Navy, I kind of had the Middle East – Uh, on my mind and went through the military police academy. And as I was getting ready to graduate that, I thought, you know, for sure that I'd be going to someplace like Kuwait or Iraq or, you know, maybe even Dubai or someplace like that. But that's not exactly how things turned out. Towards the end of graduation, they put a bunch of uh, options there on the board and kind of went down by uh, your grade level. And I was kind of like a a mid-level student. And by the time they got down to my name, I had three choices. One was Diego Garcia, which is a very small British occupied island in the I mean, in the middle of nowhere of the Indian Ocean. The other choice was Guam. Uh, and I would be, have been out on kind of the boats around Guam. And the third option was uh, Chinhe, South Korea. I, I didn't I didn't know anything about Korea at the time other than the fact that it was not an island <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. And so I thought, well, one of the reasons why I joined the Navy was to kind of experience some some cultures outside of the United States, and Guam and Diego Garcia weren't going to allow me to do that. So I, I picked Korea not really knowing uh, what, I was, what I was getting into, but I'm really glad that I did. Now, uh, did the uh, United States at that time operate a naval base in Chinhe, or does it still today? Uh, it still does today. It is a very small Navy base that uh, is attached to a much larger Korean Navy base that's there. It's kind of their version of Norfolk, you know, the U.S.'s main base. Right. I believe but that Chinhe is, uh, is the headquarters of the South Korean Navy, or at least, yeah, yes, as you say, the main base. Yes, correct. And and so the American presence there is very, very small. It's it's run by the Army, and so the, the Navy presence there it, it almost doesn't feel like a Navy base because everything is is run by the Army or the ROK Navy. And I mean, it's almost like a tiny little small town <laughs> that's that's attached to that Navy base. And it's primarily for uh, intelligence gathering. There was kind of a, an underground uh, area that all the intelligence happened. I never saw it, didn't have the clearance for that. My roommate that I was with, you know, because it was my first command. So I was pretty low ranking at the time and had a roommate. He worked down there and we kind of had a a rib at each other because the orders were if the base were to ever be overrun, that the intelligence center would be kind of the last stand. And even if we had to, we had to do whatever we could to make sure that none of the intelligence people were caught by the North Korean forces. And so I would always kind of nudge my roommate and be like, you know, I'll be there to make sure you don't get captured. Wink, wink, nod, nod. You know what that means. <laughs> right. You, that you might have to shoot him dead. Sure, sure. Oh, boy. Wow. That, that's quite some orders there. And how long did you spend at Chinhe? I spent about a year in Chinhe, kind of uh, from 2004 into 2005. You know, even when I was there, I didn't, uh, for the first part, 
I didn't really understand the 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 whole North Korean South Korean dynamic and the reason for U.S. military forces there. Uh, I spent most of that time really getting to know the culture. And what I liked about uh, the Chinhe and uh, Changwon areas, unlike Osan or even Seoul, is that the U.S. presence was so minimal there that I felt like I was really getting it wasn't it wasn't catered as much to. American taste. It was much more Korean, uh, genuine Korean. And so I really enjoyed kind of being immersed in that culture and was very thankful for the opportunity and just loved it. And what did you what do you recall from that time about North Korea was no I mean, this was the the uh, the height of the uh, the sunshine policy period Mm -hmm, uh, during mm -hmm. President Norman Hyun. So was, um, you know, was North Korea being uh, uh, quiet and friendly towards uh, South Korea at that time, or uh, w w was there some action? We uh, we didn't have any major you know provocations or anything going on at that time, which which kind of fed into my ignorance. I didn't really see any reason to look into it. We what really piqued my interest was uh, you know one of our duties was to frequently check the perimeter fence of the base, and one day we found that the perimeter fence of the base. Uh, had been cut open and, and breached. And so, uh, you know, we had to take pretty swift action against that. And we, you know, I had on the, the big suit that makes you look like a, you know, something in between a tree and Chewbacca from Star Wars. And, oh, wow. Uh, you a know, ghillie suit. Green, you know. Yeah, ghillie suit. Very good. I didn't know if you would know what that is. But and so, yeah, so we're in there. We've got our rifles pointed at it and, and nothing ended up happening uh, at that moment. And they patched it up, but we never found out what it was that that breached our base and this was right around the same time that we had also found on some north korean websites uh some pretty detailed blueprints of our base but there was a section of our base the north koreans were saying uh was a storage facility or a potential storage facility for nuclear weapons, which which that's not it wasn't accurate. There were no nuclear weapons at our base, but all of this kind of happened within the same few weeks. Mm. And so that really started to make me think, okay, what what exactly is going on with this conflict? What right. what is happening here? And then maybe about a month later, I, I had a free weekend, and a buddy of mine suggested that uh, we go up and take a tour of the DMZ. Oh, yes. So I was I was starting to kind of get interested in this at the time, and I said, ah, you know, I've got nothing else to do that weekend. We'll go up to – if anything, we'll go up to Seoul, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go up there and just kind of just say I did it. We went up there, went to the DMZ. I had never seen anything like it in my life. And you, you go and uh, take the tour, you know, and you can see the uh, propaganda cities, you know, that they call it over there. Yeah. Have this humongous, you know, flag in the distance. And I'm thinking, OK, I've been in this country about a year. I've immersed myself in the culture they're right over there. It's the same people. It's the same culture. They're they're eating the same kind of food. They speak the same language. You know, and Korea is a, a a fairly homogenous society for the most part. And it was like a twilight zone. I'm like, how can, how could one man or one small power structure control millions of people that tightly, especially when I'm looking at my friends over here in South Korea that, you know, are living relatively, you know, free and relatively comfortable lives. And ever since I went up there that day, I could not stop researching, reading it, just every little thing that I could get my hands on about the topic of the DPRK 
uh, I've just been consuming ever since, and that's been probably 15 years ago almost now. <laughs> and uh, it, it just – I've never come across anything else in my life that has been – this fascinating, especially in context that, you know, of course, the Soviet Union uh, collapsed in uh, the very early 90s. And there's nothing else in modern history that is quite like that structure and that society and that culture and that and that divided country situation. Nothing else in current time seems to exist like that. And it's so fascinating. Let me just uh, back up a little bit there, back to the uh, the hole in the fence. Uh, is it a kind of fence that could be easily cut open with wire cutters or would it have taken some special tools to cut that open? You know, if somebody had a pretty strong pair of wire cutters, they probably could have accomplished that. We never got any official word on kind of what they ruled it, it was. You know, in my opinion, it could have easily just as been a, a drunk CB who was trying to break curfew <laughs> and decided right. that, you know, he was going to do that. It could have very well been that. Was it a single uh, cut or a human shaped hole or a flap? No, it was it was big enough for at least one person to get in. And it wasn't like a crawl through hole. It was, you know, probably five or six feet up. And these uh, the the blueprints of uh of the Chenhe base that you saw on the North Korean website, there you said they were pretty detailed. Were they detailed to the extent that there were things there that you had that you had areas you didn't have clearance to that were shown in the blueprints? It was enough because I did not have you know clearance enough to see any of the intelligence type stuff. And once it was found, uh, they made sure in short order that nobody else was going to see it. So uh, I was in some of the briefings about the blueprints. Uh, but I was never privy to see the blueprints myself, so that led me to believe that the detail that was on the blueprints was probably something that was beyond my my clearance level because they really weren't very happy that they had been out there and seen and didn't want anyone else to see it that didn't need to. No doubt, and it wouldn't have, there wouldn't have been many people that would have had those kinds of blueprints to hand out to North Koreans, right? So that's uh, that's a whole mystery in itself, isn't it? How do they sure how do sure? They get yep. there? Now you said that North Korea made an accusation that there were nuclear missiles on the base. Um, you can uh, help me out with the exact date here, but if I recall correctly, it was under George H. W. Bush that. Uh, American nuclear weapons were withdrawn from the Korean Peninsula. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, during the first Bush administration. And so that's what kind of perplexed us is there. If you have nuclear weapons on a base, there's a lot that has to go into that. There's a lot of movement. There's it's it's not just something that you throw in a closet and hand someone, you know, oh, well, let the janitor in when he needs to. And just, you know, like it's there's a lot that goes into that. And so we were kind of surprised that they would have even accused us of that. And that's why we were thinking, OK, do they think that we're just this could be a potential a potential area as opposed to an area where they are being stored? Or I, We weren't quite sure what they were thinking. And the the area that they were looking at, there was a big, giant concrete slab over kind of a mound of of dirt. Uh, it was near a, a baseball field. You know, to to the untrained eye looking at this large mound of dirt with a big concrete slab on it, you're going, okay, like 
maybe if you were, you know, 15 years old and didn't know anything, you would look at it and go, oh, well, maybe that's something secret. But it, that's really all it was. It was a mound of dirt with a concrete slab. There was nothing more glorious about it than that. But that's kind of what they were targeting as what they thought was the area. So I want you to tell us uh, and our listeners about your blog that you run, please, for the last couple of minutes. Sure. So uh, I run a blog. It's on dprkdispatch.com. Uh, and I also uh, tweet at D- DPRK blog that my tagline is the lost and found of North Korea coverage. So you can go to many places on the internet, including NK News, to get kind of that in- in-depth analysis on what's happening. So I'm not going to retread any of that. So I do things like I recently reviewed uh, the James Bond film Die Another Day, uh, where a North Korean is uh, is one of the main villains, and the beginning scene takes place at the DMZ. And so I go through stuff like that and go, okay, how accurate is this? You know, could these things really happen? Is this how? North Korea would act in these kinds of situations. Uh, I did a review on the uh, 2012 remake of uh, Red Dawn, which was pretty fun. I did a did an audio review of that. DC Comics recently remade Aquaman as a North Korean defector. I took some of those issues and reviewed them uh, on my blog. Every now and then, I'll say something about Dennis Rodman or or something like that, but. Yeah, I only post every month or so just as things come in uh, of interest that aren't in the mainstream news that I think somebody who's really interested in North Korea might kind of be interested in on the side. I'm looking forward to doing a review of the coin I'm getting in August for the summit. Ah, you're going (laughs) to get one of those. Okay, great. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Have you written anything on uh, the 1994 or 1995 collision in Korea World Championship Wrestling event that took place in Pyongyang? As a matter of fact, I have it. Uh, it was pretty interesting. It, it actually has the record for the most attendance at any wrestling event, uh, pro wrestling event in history. Of course, you know we know that because the May Day Stadium is the largest uh, stadium in the world, and attendance is likely mandatory. Uh, but it was a two day event, and it's the one of the few pro wrestling events that you cannot purchase or stream on any of the you know uh, WWE or anything on their programming it's one of the few that they do not feature. So you can sometimes find it on YouTube before it's taken down, which is how I reviewed it. But yeah, I find it interesting that it's not one that you can that you can stream on a legitimate service. Well, listen, Jake, it's been uh, fantastic talking to you. Thanks very much. And we do encourage people to check out your blog, dprkdispatch.com. Com. Okay. Thanks very much, Jake. And enjoy the rest of your evening over there in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks, Jacko. It's good to talk to you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you to Ian, Pekka, and Jake for sharing your story with us, and of course, to our fearless host, Jacko's Wet Sloot. You can hear all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is a leading repository of North Korean news, research, and analysis, and we hope to see you there. You can always send feedback, questions, and comments to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast is produced by Aria Stair and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and me, Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that every month, one lucky reviewer who reviews our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform will receive a free year subscription to NK News. So make sure to leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. And if you're not subscribed already, you can save $50 today using the code podcast at checkout. Just visit our site, nknews.org slash sign up.
Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode where we'll have a special guest from The Diplomat join in on us for a roundtable on the recent Foundation Day celebrations. We'll see you in the next episode.